Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, this is Tim Foster with Capital Weekly, and I want to welcome you to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Usually I would be here with Capital Weekly editor John Howard and a guest or two, and we would be discussing uh, California politics and policy. But for today's episode, we're going to do something a little different. We are going to broadcast audio from today's postmortem of the election conference. So something that we hosted in conjunction with the McGeorge Capital Center for Law and Policy, something we do every two years right after Election Day. Uh, And in this case, you know, we didn't really have the answer. You know, as I record this, I don't even know who the president is. The next president will be, I should say. Uh, So the first panel of the day looked at polling. And I think we all know that the polls were not uh, what they were expected to be. Uh, the polling there may may well have been polling misses, although, again, the numbers are still out, so we're still trying to figure out exactly what happened. But to talk about that, we got some of the best polling people in California. Uh, Ruth Bernstein of EMC Research, Mark DiCamillo of the Berkeley IGS poll. He also was with Field for many, many years. Paul Mitchell of Political Data Incorporated. He also writes the California 120 column for Capital Weekly whenever he feels like it. And Ben Tulchin of Tulchin Research. Uh, Some of you may know him. He was Bernie Sanders' pollster uh, in the last two Sanders uh, primary campaigns. And Marissa Lagos, longtime California journalist, uh, currently with KQED, is going to moderate this discussion. And so we'll get to that in one second. I do want to thank our sponsors. Uh, We could not do these sorts of events if we didn't have sponsors to help offset the costs. And uh, so they they make all this possible. And our sponsors for this event are the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, been with Capital Weekly and Open California for many, many years. They are a presenting sponsor for pretty much everything we do. KP Public Affairs have been with us almost as long as Tassin, maybe not quite as long. Uh, the Western States Petroleum Association have been sponsoring our event series for quite a while. Kaiser Permanente, uh, a newcomer, but came in and, and very enthusiastically helped us with this year's programming. The California Building Industry Association, uh, they're celebrating 75 years this year. Uh, Capital Advocacy, also a fairly long-time supporter of Capital Weekly, and as is Lucas Public Affairs. Also, I we uh, we're happy to have on board Perry Communications, and that's led by Cassie Perry, who is one of our Open California board members. Open California is the 501c3 that publishes Capital Weekly. Also, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, the California Professional Firefighters, Pandora, and Paula Treat uh, have all sponsored this event. And Thanks very much to them. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn you over to Marissa Lagos of KQED. And uh, I do want to let you know we do have, we'll be having three other discussions posted on the podcast this week. Uh, The next one will be on the face of the electorate. So who voted this time, who didn't, and, uh, you know, what what did they seem to support or not support? And the third panel is the ballot proposition. So we're going to look at Prop 22, Prop 21, 25, etc., and try to figure out what happened. And finally, our last discussion that we will post this week will be uh, 
a discussion with Ace Smith, who is one of the best-known political consultants in California, has uh, run campaigns for Jerry Brown, the Clintons, and Kamala Harris. Most recently, he helped guide her presidential campaign. So with that, I am going to get out of here and turn this over to Marissa Lagos. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Tim. He's being very kind because I just freaked him out by being a little late to this. Uh, but it's, as, as you all know, it's been a crazy couple days. Um, it continues to be. I'm super excited to be here with a panel of folks who are way smarter than me. Um, Ruth Bernstein is from EMC Research, Mark D. Camillo from the Berkeley IGS poll, Paul Mitchell from Political Data Inc., and Ben Tolchin from Tolchin Research. These are all people, well, I don't know if Ruth and I have talked, but now, now you're going to hear from me. These are all people I bug all the time so that I sound better on the air. I think I've been texting Paul like daily for the past few weeks about like ballot tracking and questions. Um, and yeah, we're going to jump into it. I mean, it is a little hard because guess what? The votes haven't been counted, if you all have heard. Um, <laughs> we're still in this election. But I think, I think um, the nice thing about this group is that um, I know Ben does some national stuff and, and, and Ruth may too, but a lot of you know, what you guys do is California. So I think that's a nice contrast to talk about because it does feel like we're in a kind of a different place in California um, than nationally. And so to open up, I mean, Ruth, can I start with you on that? Like, are, is there a big difference between polling at the state level and the national level? That was a huge question. Thank you. <laughs> Um, thank you all. Yeah, so we, our firm does national polling. I've been focused on California for the last 25 years. So, um, but, you know, one of the interesting things, and we've been going through all of our results, you know, uh, some of the publicly available polling on the presidential, and it seems like that is different. And, and as you said, the votes are still being counted, and it's way too early to start saying whether or not um, exactly what what's happening on the presidential level. You know, there's a, I mean, a couple of things. One, there's a huge difference between polling that's conducted for the media. Um, you know, that that is designed for people to go and click on 538 or click on New York Times, and it's um, and and it's really about the the vote where it is today compared with a lot of the polling that we do. Um, and I know Ben does, you know, it's really more of the kind of internal polling that is going to be used for the campaign to guide the, the, the um, where things are going. And, you know, many of those were not tra tracking every single day. And um, a lot of that stuff was very accurate. Um, there's also a lot of difference in California. Um, we're really lucky. We have fabulous voter lists, thanks to our friend here who's on the panel. <laughs> so, you know, not only, um, you know, we have really good contact information. So when people register to vote, there are fields for email address, phone number. Um, we also have, uh, you know, PDI that collects all that data and appends it and adds to it. So we have a great way of, of, of doing good random samples. That's not true in other places in the country. We have a really hard time sometimes getting, uh, you know, as quality data, and that matters. So, and and I think that that's one of the things we have to look at in some of the polling that's that's being um, uh, that's in the media. You know, how was that polling done? What methodology did they use? What sample was available? And, and all of that. So. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Mark, let me ask you, because I've been wondering, like, okay, when we look at states like Arizona that are changing demographically, when we look at the fact that both campaigns have really made an effort to turn out voters that didn't come out in years past, and it looks like it's working, are there lessons that national pollsters or campaign internal pollsters 
could could learn from California because we've seen a real change over the last 30 years of our electorate and looking at the ballot measures that you guys pulled on I mean a lot of those seem pretty you know maybe not exact but in the in the in the region of where where they may end up once all the votes are counted so what can what can all the national people learn from us here in California Mark <laughs> yeah I uh, I will second Ruth's comment about the availability of our voter lists in California, it really is a huge advantage when you're doing pre-election polls. Uh, we do the public polls, as you know, uh, and back at the field poll, when I was doing telephone polls for 40 years, I transitioned over to the voter list maybe 10 years ago and uh, found it to be you know, a big help. So now we're transitioning at Berkeley over to email uh, surveys, which you know, from our standpoint, really offer even greater advantages. And why is that? It's because polls unweighted, you know, back 30, 40 years ago when I was a kid, uh, when we were doing polls at field, you didn't have to weight the sample. The, the random sample that you got back was pretty much reflective of the total population that you were serving. That is no longer the case, no matter what method you use right now. And so you need to apply very fairly heavy modeling or weighting, however you want to refer to it. And we get a lot of that information from Paul and his people, but we you know, get information from the Secretary of State and we go outside of that to some of the, uh, the census available data. But you really need to, to really have very good models of those, the population you're trying to survey. And uh, in order to do that, in my judgment, you need very large samples. And that's what email surveys enable us to do because we can refine our weighting, not only to the statewide levels by age and party and gender and all these variables in within one another, but we do it at within eight regions of the state. So we get a really good, or at least we try to get a really good sample of voters in the Central Valley and a really good sample of voters in LA County and, and so on. So with a large sample, and ours is you know, between 6,500 and 8,500, I would tell the national pollsters, you gotta start thinking about ways that you can uh, change your methodology because telephone is just way too expensive to get samples like that. Uh, and the modeling that you can do is limited by the sample size. Uh, I would think that you have to start thinking creatively. Uh, certainly you can't do what we necessarily do because we have the luxury of emails in, in California, which is really a wonderful methodology, but you have to start thinking creatively about changing your methodologies. That would be my advice to the national pollsters. All right, before I go to Ben and make him answer for all pollsters, um, Paul, like, so I don't know, should you be going national? Like, why is the data better here than anywhere else? Is it our, is it our registration system? Is it just because you are making all this money off of these people? Like, what is it? Uh, well, thanks. And thanks for having me here with all of my greatest clients. Um, so uh, it is, I can't take credit for all of it, obviously. Um, PDI has been around for 30 years. They really pioneered the idea of creating one big state voter file from all 58 counties. And we have people at PDI that manage every, in some cases, every month or every week, pulling in county files, reappending data from people's prior registrations at other counties, preserving things like the voter registrar uh, emails that they put on their forms so that we can have those high quality, large samples that, that Mark needs. And just so people know who are watching, they might've heard Mark and, and Ruth talking about emailing voters and email samples. It's not those kind of like clicker polls. These are actual 
registrar emails people are putting on the registration form. We attach that to the voter record. We have that data move with these voters as they re-register and, and everything. Then we also append all the data that we build from county assessor records to determine like homeowners versus renters, which might be a big variable to look at uh, ethnicity and the ways to break down ethnicity, which isn't a perfect science, but it is a lot better in California than other states. But it's a combination of having a company like PDI around for 30 years, creating a high quality data state and also the availability of data from our secretary of state and our, our counties. But that doesn't just create itself. Uh, we've done a lot of work directly with the secretary of state's office this election cycle, getting additional data like when people have those missing bad signatures we're hearing about nationally, we actually have every one of those flagged in the PDI right now. Um, that's the kind of thing that you wouldn't have in any other state. Um, the data that we get from counties and, and from the state uh, is, is better in California, but it's oftentimes better because we have a staff that works directly with all 58 counties that pulls that data down and it's something that's unique to California. So, um, you know, the, the first two uh, pollsters to talk uh, were right. Ben, I think, will have a really interesting experience to talk about because he did the polling for uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign, has done a lot of national polling. And one of the problems is that when you're doing polling in 50 states and you have some states that don't have registration and some states that don't put a lot of prior vote history on the voter file, some states don't have, like, when people vote in primaries, that stuff's not scored on the voter file. Some states, you have to buy the party, the data from the political parties. You end up with a situation where when you're trying to do like a national poll, you're doing like the lowest common denominator to make sure all of the data across the country is, is rather standardized and you're not having these, these mismatches of really high quality data here and really bad data there. So um, the data is where we believe uh, great polling in California starts. Um, and I think it's something that uh, we've worked really, really hard on. So I appreciate the, the first two folks uh, mentioning it. All right, Ben. So what are your kind of broad takeaways watching the last few days? Because I think, you know, like I said at the beginning, there's a lot of people who want to like eat the pollsters again and, um, and who, you know, and I think we in the media have gotten better about trying to sort of like buffer this all. Like it's a moment in time. Things happen at the end of a campaign, like, right? Things can change. So how... Like, how would you grade the improvement from 2016 to now? And what are the big blind spots you're still seeing, whether it's the data Paul's talking about or just, um, I don't know, pollsters' ability to really understand what the electorate's going to look like? No, that's a great question. And thanks for uh, having me on this panel. It's an honor to be here with you and the rest of the panelists. Um, I, I would say, look, I mean, thinking about uh, what's happened two days ago as I'm still recovering from this uh, very long election year, because uh, my election year started in January 2019 when I first started working for Bernie in uh, his 2020 presidential campaign after 2016. So it's been a long five years for me. But with that said, I think there are um, uh, two separate questions here. One is uh, what happened with the polling, and it's still a little early, but but they're pretty clear indicators that it, it, it very much similar dynamic happened in this election than 2016 is under representing um, uh, Trump's support. And two is what happened in the campaign. Real world events impact 
people's opinions. As you noted, it's a snapshot in time. And to address that latter question first, before you get to the polling, in uh, looking at what happened, I was following like many people, PDI has a ballot tracker. So I mean, every day I'm at there at whatever, 1201, hitting refresh, refresh and looking at the ballots coming in, right? And uh, there's another uh, a national voter data file database that was tracking something similar, not nearly as good as, as PDI's. But, uh, and what happened was, is PDI showed in California, what, what the rest of the country, Democrats had a huge lead starting week four, week three, week two. And then starting on Friday, Republicans starting voting in droves. And we saw this dramatic closing. And I was feeling good about our prospects a week out. I woke up Tuesday morning with the sense of uh, concern. I was like, mm. it, what happened was up until through last Thursday, Democrats had a lead in California and everywhere else that was better than 2016. So things looked better for us. And then by Tuesday morning, it looked uh, comparable to 2016 or a little bit worse. And, and, and Republicans had momentum. So normally Democrats vote late, like in California with the more they vote, the better Democrats and progressive causes do. And that's not, that's will be remain to be seen in this election. The early vote was very democratic. And as they voted, as they counted votes the last two days, it became more Republican. So clearly uh, Republicans voted later and broke late. And part of that was Trump, you know, disparaging vote by mail. So he was suppressing the early vote, his own supporters, but also I look at the campaign, the presidential campaign, and I have to admit, we're in a COVID, we're in a very unusual circumstances. And I look at Trump, what he did in the last final days, he was holding in-person rallies. I mean, there may be super spreading events, but he was having rallies all around the country, multiple rallies a day with you know tens of thousands of people attending them without masks, but uh, violating local health ordinances. And there's a sense of momentum and, you know, he was galvanizing his base and Joe Biden in the respecting uh, public health guidelines was, you know, going around the country, limiting events, wearing a mask in, in a parking lot with people honking their horns. And I do think there is an element of excitement that Trump was able to build up with his base that and we saw like the vote, Republican votes came in and, and you look at it happened in California, you look at the congressional race in California, we now have three very, very close races that we won, several very close congressional races that we won in 2018 now were that are neck and neck now. And you look around the country, we're, we're going to, you know, we're not going to win back the Senate. Uh, we're losing House seats where we were expected to gain House seats. And Biden, you know, the national polling had him up eight to 10 points, and he's going to win by maybe three and a half to four is my projection. So he's going to win by a much narrower margin in, in the state by state polling, Michigan, Wisconsin in particular, missed by eight points. So, so I think the real events of the campaign events had an impact on, uh, and things broke against us just like they did in 2016. Now, with that said, um, why? Why did they break? Why did the polling miss it? Part of it, campaign events, opinions move. Part of it is this undercounted Trump support. And look, in 2016, clearly under candidate. In 2020, we did two, even if Biden does prevail, which it looks like he will. And if you look at the states that had the biggest discrepancy in public polling and the results, they had a disproportionate number of non-college white voters, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Iowa. Uh, and I, you know, I worked, worked for Bernie in the presidential campaign, and I saw that, you know, Bernie appealed to a large number of 
voters who are disaffected with the political process, who are frustrated with the economic status quo, and disengaged with the political process. And Trump speaks to not the same people, but the same type of person. And that person is an irregular voter, angry, and they may not take our surveys, right? And there is something to the fact that uh, there is a segment of people who are angry with the, you know, corporate elites, economic elites, political elites, and they may not be taking our surveys. And look, I mean, Ruth can speak to this and Mark can too, but, you know, typically we only get 1% or less of people to respond to our surveys. So it's scientific, it's random, but if you're only getting 1% or less of people to respond, there's a large number of people we clearly aren't getting to respond to our surveys. And so I do have to wonder now with two elections in around 2016, 2020, with this undercount, uh, especially among non-college white voters, if we are missing something. And Mark, is that a group that you've had challenges with in California at all? And can you talk a little bit about what your final polling looked like in terms of the presidential horse race and where we're at now in California with that? Sure. Uh, first, uh, interesting to hear that Ben, you know, is getting 1%. Um, I can imagine that's true for uh, most private organizations and uh, political poll, uh, you know, consultants because they don't have the benefit of an institutional email logo like the University of California is sending you an email. We, we're getting response rates to our email surveys of 5%. That's comparable to what we used to get when we tried to do well-conducted telephone surveys. So I haven't seen a, a real loss in terms of response rate, but I do agree there's no way uh, you're going to bring into the sample, no matter how, you know, 1%, 5%, the underrepresented segments that clearly are lower educated voters um, actually voters who have less interest in public affairs and politics to begin with, um, rural voters. Um, you know, these voters are hard to get into your polls. And again, I underline the fact that if you do larger and larger samples, you will bring some of them in and you will be able to adjust your sample accordingly if, you're, if you can look at the levers that kind of describe what variables those people are in, in terms of trying to adjust your sample. Obviously, I'm not going in and looking at individual voters. I don't know how they're voting. I'm just looking at characteristics of the electorate that should conform to the state statewide total. So uh, the weighting is just so profound, and I don't believe that the national polls can keep up with it. Uh, you look at the results that came in with all of these discrepancies at the state levels. I mean, you know, they're doing 800, 1,000 samples. And, you know, these are the best pollsters in the country, too. I don't want to disparage them. I mean, I was on a Zoom conference call on Friday with Peter Hart. And, you know, he's doing some of the best work of any pollster in the country. And yet he's missing, uh, you know, uh, states by eight, eight points or, or so. Um, it's just a problem and it's, it's going to get worse. And so I actually turned my back on telephone polls. I don't think they're the way to go. There's just too many technical devices now that people can use to block unwanted calls. Uh, it's not a random sample and you're just blocking out way too many people. Uh, cell phones increase the cost. Anyways, I'm just not a fan of telephone surveys. As you go down the road, you have to start thinking outside the box. And, you know, Berkeley gave me that opportunity when I came here in 2017, we started experimenting with different methods. I didn't start out with email, but I ended up there. 
after about a year and a half, and I'm very glad we are there. And I think if you look at the results in California, you're asking me to look at the, uh, the, the presidential race. Our final poll had uh, Biden at 65 and Trump at 29. There were 4% undecided. So if you allocate the undecided in roughly the same proportion, we're gonna end up at about 67.30 in our poll. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's gonna be far off. I end up at my, my view of the uncounted vote. Um, I can understand why it may be different than prior years, but we asked questions of the voters that we were surveying, how are you intending to vote? And very few Republican voters said they were going to use a mail ballot to vote. They were going to the polls to vote in person or, you know, and that's where that big wave started coming in on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and so on in California. So I still believe that the overhanging vote in California is probably heavily Democratic just because of the method in which they poll. They were doing their, um, sending in their ballots. So I think the margin that Biden, you'll see uh, as it goes on, will grow maybe a point or so, not a huge amount, but that may have implications on some of the ballot propositions that are close and maybe some of these congressional races that are close. So if I were a Democrat in those congressional districts right now, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be giving a concession speech just yet. Thank you, Mark. Um, okay, I'm gonna go to Ben in just a minute because he, he has a differing opinion on uh, phones versus uh, email surveys. But Ruth, I wanna ask you something first. So as a reporter, you know, we do the IGS, the PPIC, the public polling. I often get offered stuff internally from, from campaigns and I actually feel like sometimes it's more accurate, but for ethical reasons, like it's very hard to report on internal surveys without it coming off as, you know, that you're basically giving a campaign. And obviously they're only gonna share them if they think there's a good reason for it. But can you tell us a little bit about the difference between internal polling and public polling? And like, is one, does one tend to be more accurate or are you just looking for different things? Because I can imagine if you're doing a poll as a campaign, you want it to be actionable. Like you don't care just, are we at 58, you know, 42, you care, what can I do to move that number? Is that kind of, is that accurate? Yeah, well, obviously, um, right, there's a lot of different, they are very different. And of course, I'd love to talk about Mark's um, methodology issue <laughs> question as well, which I can, we can all talk about all of these things for a long time. Mark, uh, one thing on the email, only one of the, you know, we're finding when we're actually incorporating doing a lot of multimodal. So uh, we're, we're shifting to a lot of texting, especially in states and areas where there is an email. We're also having problems with emails getting blocked. And also that there are certain populations that we're really having a very hard time to reach in other methods other than phones, such as Chinese speaking population or anyway, we could talk about methodology, but back to Marissa, your question. So, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why internal, why you do internal polling. So, you know, way at the beginning and like Ben, I, this cycle for us started two years ago. So, uh, you know, completely exhausted and brain dead now, you know, it's, it's figuring out whether you want to run as a candidate, it's creating the ballot measure. So, you know, on, um, that like the measure RR, the Caltrain sales tax measure. We started working on that a long time ago, crafting that, how to write that ballot question, all of that, you know, that goes early. And then also you're figuring out, so how do you actually design your measure? How do you design your campaign? Should you run? What should your strategy be? 
um, you know, figuring out who your target voters are, what should you be saying? So that's a lot of the internal polling. Now, sometimes that also gets released because there is a story that maybe a campaign wants to tell publicly. Our measure is winning. Our candidate is winning. Our candidate is, you know, close. So you want to get that out in the media. But typically, and sometimes, and sorry, sometimes those polls are actually done in order to release them because you want to tell a story. Um, but yes, they're it's done for a very different reason. It's, you know, sometimes an internal poll and a client will want to do a poll specifically because they want to release it to tell a story, but it's very different than the polling that's being done on the presidential race. That's, that's that kind of every single day tracking the numbers. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it, it is very different. We have to look at it differently. And when we talk about polls, a lot of the work that we do is very different. And so, you know, I think, and a, another thing I wanted to mention just quickly on the, you know, on the, the national stuff and the, the Trump vote, one of the things that we're, we're seeing, and again, this is very early and it depends on what you compare it to, but it looks like a lot of the public polling had Biden's number right. So what seems to be happening is, and the question is, are those, are there actually shy Trump voters? And is it specific to Trump or is it they're, is it they're underrepresented or they're actually not wanting to say how they're gonna vote? And, and is that what's happening? So that's a lot to throw out there, but I'll- Do you wanna add anything on the methodology before I go to Ben and he starts a fight with Mark? No, I think, I think, <laughs> no, I think the big issue on methodology is that this is a, constantly changing, uh, you know, for us. So, you know, we were back doing phone only for a long time. We started incorporating email uh, eight or 10 years ago. We were very early in incorporating email um, or as soon as Paul had the email addresses, we started incorporating email is really what we started doing. Um, and then uh, we've also now been adding in texting because we're finding uh, one email addresses are getting blocked by servers um, and it's also underrepresenting. And then we're finding we can mix in phone. And then, you know, what we're also not talking about here is uh, cost. So Mark is in a great position, right? Where maybe he's got some flexibility. We have clients that have to pay for things and there's a huge cost difference in uh, using live telephone interviewers compared with some of the other methodologies. And so, you know, that all has to get taken into account, especially when, a, when we're figuring out what's the right, what's the right methodology to use. Awesome. All right, Ben, jump in here. And we did get a question from the audience that maybe you can incorporate into um, your rant. No, I'm just kidding. Um, which is about using social media uh, or partnering with social media companies to use that to get a bigger pool of voters. I mean, we hear so much about Facebook and, and conservatives. So, but maybe start with it. You don't like emails. I know I'm a fan of emails. I, look, every methodology has its limitations, right? This is a social science and not a hard science, right? And obviously, Mark been in the industry a long time has a really uh, you know impressive reputation track record. Uh, you know what we've found. Uh, uh, so 2016, after post 2016, we started reevaluating our methodology, like many pollsters did, and we started incorporating a multi-modal approach, which means you're using multiple modes. And what we found over the last four years. Uh, and honestly, you talk as about California innovation. I mean, our firm uh, doing, you know, phone and emails in that same survey, we found we were, I go back East in DC and, and I, I, I incorporated in the 2018 cycle. I went back to DC and firms were like, oh, wow, what is this email and hybrid method you're using? Anyway, so, so what, what we found is this basically, 
uh, there's a segment of the population. We, we like using multiple modes to reach different people because different people respond differently to, 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 to modes. For example, landlines still work. Not 100% of the population, but there is a segment of the population that still has a landline. And when you call them, they will answer. And in terms of cost, you can auto dial landlines. So I can put a machine, landline numbers in a machine and a computer dials, 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 dials. Someone answers, operator picks up. So there's a slice of the electorate that still has a landline and answers. So I call them and guess they tend to be older women, senior women who live at home alone and are happy to talk to a stranger, right? So that's one segment of the electorate. Cell phones, I call cell phones. Another segment of the electorate answers cell phones. I'm a Gen Xer. I get a random 415-916 phone number. I answer it. 90% of the time, it's, it's spam, but I still answer it, okay? And uh, millennials, uh, to Ruth's point, they respond to texts. They won't answer a, a phone number that they don't know, right? But they will respond to a text. And then email, I found uh, not always, but people most likely to relatively more likely to respond to an email are middle-aged white men who tilt Republican. So we've been able to act and found like, like we've been able to find that kind of quiet Trump voter, you know, a little bit, someone who's more like a Trump supporter, profile a Trump supporter through email. So what we do is we have four different modes we're using. And, you know, with, with cost, I mean, it, it's actually, it's not that much cheaper because we have to manage basically four surveys in one. So the, the, the like Mark's approach, I've been impressed with the results of the Mark surveys for an all online, but the, the challenge with an all email methodology is only about 40% of people in the voter file have an email. So he, Mark cannot talk to 60% of voters. And we've tried all emails and it's, it's sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and what we found it's really hard, Mark, I'm curious how you find them, uh, foreign language speakers, especially Spanish speaking Latinos in California, Arizona, Texas, places with large Latino populations. I, I really struggled to get uh, Spanish speaking Latinos on through email. Like I have to text them, call them, lots of cell phones, a lot of cell phone calls. So, um, so that's been our experience. But as I laid out, it's incredibly more complex. What I have, what, what Mark did 20 years ago, what Ruth and I did 20 years ago is radically different. Our industry is evolving and has to continue to evolve to stay relevant. And, and to Ruth's point about what we do as private polls, so the good news about what Ruth and I have get to do, um, we provide a, a strategic, uh, uh, you know, contribution to the campaign, right? We're not just releasing uh, horse race numbers, we provide strategy, right? And so that's a value added to campaigns that uh, as long as our polling is mostly right, uh, which is the cycle it, it, for us it was, uh, we provide value to our clients. Whereas the public polling that just providing, you know, horse race numbers that are proving to be more and more inaccurate, maybe they may, they may struggle to stay in business. But fortunately for those of us who are strategists, as long as our, some of our clients keep winning, hopefully we'll be able to stay in business. Well, do you think in your experience that polling impacts turnout? Like do people react to what I write about an IGS poll and does that impact whether they vote or how they vote? Well, I do think that there's this effect and we might be seeing some of that this election cycle. And I think we might've seen it in 2016 where um, if voters believe that Hillary Clinton's gonna win by huge margins and they're living in an Orange County swing congressional district, they might pull lever for ISA because they think like, well, I might vote for Hillary or I might not care much about this congressional race, but because I think the country's going one way in the presidential race, 
I might want to change where I'm voting in a congressional, or they might think, you know, I'm going to vote or not vote based on what they're thinking is happening in the race nationally. Um, but, you know, the, the effect of it might be less than kind of what public perception is of that effect. Uh, I think a lot of times we grab on to things that we think cause events, and this happens in our personal lives, and it happens in, in our analysis of elections. I mean, you know, you might wake up one morning and have the sniffles and say, oh, it's because I went, you know, I got the chills last night, or it's because I ate that thing, you know, and our ability as human beings to take a, something that's happening and tie it to the causation is really tough. And if we think about what's happened in 2016 and now with this potential effect of kind of the undercounting of uh, potential Trump support in the national polls, in 2016, everybody said, well, there's two things that caused Hillary to lose and for the polling to be wrong. One was the Comey letter caused Hillary to lose points at the end of the race. Secondly, the polling was off because they were undercounting, as, as I think Ben mentioned, um, you know, the lower educate, they weren't waiting by education, they were missing a lot of lower education white uh, Democrats who might be Trump supporters. Now we have to rethink not just what is happening now, but we should be rethinking what we thought about back then. Um, we should be saying to ourselves, hey, now every pollster is waiting for education. I had clients calling us asking like, where's the education variable? I have somebody on this call that every time they send the order, they say, make sure you put in the education variable. Um, and, uh, and yet we saw the same thing. And so when we do explore what potentially might've been the problem in polling this year, we should also again explore whether or not our conclusions about what happened in 2016, that kind of herd mentality about what the error was should be you know, looked at again, I think. Um, that's a great segue and I kind of throw this out to whoever wants to jump on it, but what about the question of herding? I mean, I've heard about this with public pollsters nationally that they might weight their results differently if it feels like this total outlier. Um, and that seems, I don't know, I'm not a statistician, so maybe that, that makes total sense, but like Ruth, you, what do you Oh, hearing? I think that's completely true. I think that people didn't want to believe, I mean, we have an, we did a poll in uh, you know, around early September, whatever, in fall, uh, in Ohio, the presidential race, we had Trump ahead, and our clients didn't want to hear about it, didn't want to release it, didn't want to, <laughs> didn't want, we, we refused to believe it. Um, you know, we've been um, uh, saying that we have a problem in Miami-Dade County in Florida, um, that, um, and with Cuban voters, and, you know, people are like, well, we don't want to hear that. You know, there was this kind of herd mentality, I think, of the blue wave. Um, and I, you know, and I think this goes back to 20, I think it was, it was very apparent in 2016. I don't know as much, maybe not now, but in 2016, I think there was really a, a belief, the feeling that I can't believe people will vote for Trump, right? So when we saw those undecided voters, we, rather than saying, they're not telling us they're voting for Trump. It was, it's kind of this mentality of our own little bubble, right? And so I think we have to take that into account. And I think we have to remember that we also as political people are in our political world, right? And watching our, the, you know, and, and Twitter and social media just make it even worse where what we should be doing really as researchers, especially is listening to 
you know, more common Americans, right? So, you know, it's, we, you know, we should almost get out. It's, 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 I think we get into our bubble and that in, impacts how we view things. And of course we completely try not to, but yeah. it's hard not to. But yeah, no, it's hard. I mean, look, I think hurting is real. I mean, in, in because you can pay, uh, you pay a severe price for being the outlier in this business, right? Whether a DC based in Sacramento, DC, uh, you know, political thinking tends to kind of conform to be pretty homogenous. And I'll give you an example. I mean, I was one of the leading advocates uh, in, in uh, 2014, where I, 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 my polling saw like energy was low, our polls were tighter, and I adjusted my turnout model because I was like, I don't think we're having a good, uh, I, I, it was, but it was, it was an intuition, right? It was, it was part data, part just my own experience, what I was seeing out there. And at the end of the day, we got wiped out. Democrats got wiped out in 2014 and, and the DCCC Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee was doing polling for them. They, they did an independent analysis of the 10 pollsters that, that worked for them. And they rated me as their most accurate because races that were close were close, races that weren't close weren't, but other pollsters had close races that they lost by 10 points. And, and they said, what'd you do? I said, look, I adjusted midstream my turnout model, but that takes, look, it's mid-September, you're working on dozens of races, lack of sleep, you know, it's very hard to kind of step back and get a bigger picture. And I just was able to take a breath. And then 2018, my polling was too very democratic. And I was like, it's going to be a wave election. There's a reaction against Trump, all the energy that's out there, the women's marches, the anti, you know, uh, uh, asylum marches, that's going to channel into a wave election for Democrats going back to the house. And I said that early 2017 and my polls kept showing Democrats winning. And, and I got uh, talking to in DC saying, your polls are too democratic. I'm like, because they're right. And I was right, but it, it was an uncomfortable position to be in. And it's easier for a consultant to just go along with the mainstream and say, okay, I'll conform because you get, re even if you're wrong, but if you're wrong with everybody else, you'll get rehired. But if you're wrong and as an outlier, People say, oh, look at that guy, he got it wrong. Even though you could be right most of the time and call the big things, but if you're right wrong once as an outlier, the downside is so great. It's, and I've, I've suffered this and I've, I've gone through it and it's very uncomfortable to be having your polling question because you don't know until the ballots are cast, right? So it's, it's, it's so I, there's definitely a strong uh, tendency to herd. And, you know, Mark talked about waiting. And, and so what you do is pollsters, they look around at other polls, see what the results are, and they want to make sure they're not the outlier, right? So it's, it's a very common uh, problem. And so when you have a situation like this, where it's a su surprise, again, uh, because most polling conforms to, to, to the mean. Well, Mark, given what Ben's talking about, like I would think that that would make people outside of our little political bubble even more skeptical of pollsters. Um, can you make the case, like, why should we not give up on polling after, and this is kind of Alex Clemens' question from the beginning, um, you know, that some national pundits are like, the polling industry's dead, or it should be, but give me, give me your best, get best selling, you know, argument for why, why you all should still have jobs. Well, I think, you know, you have to look carefully uh, at this cycle and kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. I think there were some good polls done that will uh, hold up to the election. Uh, I think, for example, when I saw Ann Seltzer's poll coming out of Iowa, which showed uh, Trump up by seven points or so the day before, the weekend before the election, I started to think, my God, she's about as good as they get in a state poll. And I thought, wow, that has implications not only for 
Iowa, but for Ohio, the rest of the Midwest. And she's picking up something because that was a change and a shift towards Trump. And I believe her. And so if you have good pollsters, and I also think that people like Ann Seltzer, and I, you know, I have to say for myself and maybe my, even Mark Baldessari, we do the same thing over and over and over again in one population group. I'm not a consultant where they're taking me here, there, and everywhere. I'm just sticking to my knitting here in California statewide. That's what I do. I've done it for 40 years. I, I really try not to listen to all of the noise that is going on around me. I mean, for me, herding does not exist because I don't even look at the results until I'm completely done with my waiting. Uh, and then the results just fall out. And here it is. This is what we got. We're going to run them, run with them. So I don't have clients to deal with. I just have, I guess, my media uh, people to look at and say, well, this is what we got. And I'm going to stand behind it because I've been doing this for a long time and we're usually right. <laughs> Adjusting it makes me really nervous. I'm not that smart. So um, anyways, that's just my reaction. I think if you look, you will find good pollsters in particular groups. That's why I, actually one of the thoughts I had, and I'm not sure this is going to hold up, but when the national pollsters who are so good at doing national polls this year, having to now go to the various battleground states and now do these very public polls in states that they haven't been doing for years and years, I think they're in trouble. I, I, I would be very worried if somebody came to me and say, Mark, you go now do a poll in Arizona. I don't think so. I, I'd say no. My reputation would be shot. So I like to stick to my knitting and do what I do well and hopefully it'll come out okay. And maybe that was part of the problem this cycle because everybody and their brother was doing these polls in the battleground states, yet they didn't have a long history in those states. So I worry about that. And I would imagine some of these states are so small, they don't have a Mark D. Camillo or even Ben Tolchins and all that. Ruth, we have a question um, from David Shapiro about this idea of the shy Trump voter. Do you think I mean, first of all, do you think that's a thing, I guess, is the question. And he asks, is this a phenomenon, if you do agree with it, that's likely to happen again um, with a candidate like Trump on the ballot or would things return back to normal? And I mean, this brings up, just for context, everyone, like the Bradley effect we talk about, right, from that, um, what year was that? I can't remember. Uh, 1982, I was there. <laughs> you know, this idea that people didn't want to acknowledge that they were voting um, against Tom Bradley, who, who's Black. But that's yeah. maybe an oversimplification. But what do you think, Ruth? Well, my answer is I don't know, because <laughs> I'll admit to things that I don't know. Um, I mean, first of all, we don't even know the final results yet. I mean, we're all just, you know, I'm like watching CNN along with everybody else. Um, but the... Um, so, and after 2016, I kind of didn't believe it. This, this, I, I mean, I kind of was um, along with a lot of things happened at the end, you know, maybe the Comey letter, maybe people really did change the waiting, all, you know, all of the things like something actually happened, you know, now in looking at the results preliminarily, like I am wondering whether there is like that our voters saying they're either undecided or saying they're voting for a third party candidate and they're really voting for Trump. So I, I don't know. And I think that's something that um, I would like to look to, into the analysis. Um, and, you know, also I think, you know, this happened in 2016 and it happened now, you know, what, what we don't see in that publicly available polling is let's look at those people who aren't voting for Biden or Trump or say they aren't voting for Biden or Trump. 
we don't we don't get to see like what's their rating of Biden. Do they have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Biden? I think in 2016, many of them had unfavorable opinions of Clinton. Many like if we had seen that analysis, we could have seen where those voters were going. Um, also on uh, some other attitudinal questions like. And I think there was a question about, um, you know, do we only look at the vote? We don't only look at the vote. I look at the vote and then I look at, okay, what do we look at those of people that aren't voting? Wh what are they doing? Where, what are their attitudes? What are their opinions on some of the questions about is a strong leader? Which candidate is a strong leader? Which candidate is gonna be good for the um, economy? That's a good indicator of where people are going. So again, I, you know, I don't know yet, but it seems like there may be something. And what we don't know is, is it just about Trump specifically, or is it a more a broader Republican issue this year? Like maybe the, there was a movement. So I don't know. I could, I mean, I would follow up on that. Ruth, I thought it was well said because it's it's a little early to tell. But I, I had doubts about the shy Trump voter in 2016. Was okay. Look, Hillary wasn't popular. Trump was fairly unpopular, but Hillary became the establishment quasi incumbent, and voters wanted change, so they broke against the establishment and quasi incumbent for the change candidate. That 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 makes sense. Typically, how it's worked. 2018 polling was pretty accurate. Trump wasn't on the he was on the ballot in a reaction against him, but his name was on the ballot. 2020 comes along, and you have an incumbent president who's unpopular. Biden's favorables are going up. He was relatively, he had a net positive favorability rating. So he was more popular than, much more popular than Trump. And Trump, you know, was in office and, you know, mis voters unanimously panned his handling of, uh, mishandling of the uh, coronavirus and people were dying as a result. You think, okay, this guy's mismanaged that. They're, they don't like him. They like the alternative. They, it should break for, conventionalism suggests, and in past elections should break against Trump for, Biden. That didn't happen. And so I, I'm starting to wonder about the shy um, Trump voter theory. Uh, but the other thing that my, what I noticed, my theory coming out of 2016, and one reason why I felt uh, Hillary lost, and then partly out of sexism, but but she failed to consist, consistently communicate an economic message. And I learned this coming from working for Bernie, who, you know, Bernie's not, you know, um, Bernie had, you know, not perfect, but he had real strengths. And one of his big strengths was he had a clear economic message and he a rigged economy, he was taking out a rigged economy propped up by a corrupt political system. And he galvanized a lot of people who were disaffected by politics. And, um, and he brought in a lot of new voters into the fold, similar to what Trump did, but from, you know, a, you know, a, progress, a left, a progressive populist perspective, as opposed to a conservative right-wing populist perspective. And 2020 comes along, and, and the four times Hillary Clinton talked about an economic message, her poll numbers went up and Trump's went down when she accepted the, her nomination speech at the convention and the three debates. But then she didn't, you know, communicate that. And what did voters not know about her economic message? What, what they knew about Trump was a, you know, sexist misogynist, but they didn't know about her economic message of the campaign. Communi con consistent, Hillary campaign continued to attack Trump on the, the women's issues. So fast forward to 2020, and, you know, I looked at, uh, I did analysis working for Bernie in, in the primary of all of Biden's ads in Iowa in, in, for the caucuses and all of Bernie's ads, of which I, I, I wrote a good chunk of them. And in my polling drove them. And Bernie's message was economic. I'm, you know, affordable health care, better wages, better jobs. I'm going to help you. How, you know, he clearly communicated how he was going to help working people. And Biden was about, 
I'm a good guy. I'm Barack Obama's vice president. I'm decent. I'm going to restore normalcy. I'm experienced. Nothing about economics, nothing how he's going to help the average person. It's about himself. Hillary is, I'm with her, the first one president, a movement, uh, personality driven campaign. Biden was a personality driven campaign. But Biden lacked the uh, uh, charisma and the uh, celebrity status that Obama had to pull that off in a major way to, 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 to do when transforming, uh, you know, a mandate. And, and, and I, I, my big lesson, I learned it from 2016, and, and I think it applies to 2020, is unless you give voters a reason to vote for you, to make them excited to go out and vote. Trump's base was animated. They were excited to vote for him. Biden's base was motivated to vote against Trump. But very few people were excited to vote for Biden. And I felt he, he missed that opportunity, just as Hillary did. And I feel as a party, the Democratic Party, we have to learn that lesson. Unless you give people, there are millions of people in this country who are disaffected, who are struggling financially and are turned off by politics. And, and unless you speak to them, then you're not going to win a, 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 a governing mandate. And which, with the Electoral College in the U.S. Senate, you're not going to win the majority in the Senate. And it's, you're going to barely squeak by this Electoral College system. So and, and now, you know, Biden's elected, but he looks like he's going to have a Republican, Mitch McConnell, and Republican Senate to deal with a diminished majority in the House. And, you know, I'm very worried, assuming he wins, what kind of man, what kind of uh, policy is going to be able to uh, uh, pass. So so that that's my kind of takeaways have kind of slept on not slept much in the last couple of days. But over the last several years, as I've I've, I've seen what happened in 2016, what's happening in 2020. Um, Paul, can you talk a little bit about what data like like there's been a lot of talk. I mean, there's the shy Trump voter thing, but then there's also, you, you know, education level, um, you know, questions about, I don't know, like, 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 what do voter registration forms tell you? And then what do you guys go out and kind of figure out from that, that, that you include in this data that the pollsters are using? Yeah, so we get the public voter registration records. And the most important fact about that is that when we do get these county records, we don't just take them on face value. We actually go and find other former registrations by those people in other counties because counties don't share data between them. When you re-register in Sacramento County, it's just a blank registration. You don't have all your prior vote history. But if you look at my voter record in PDI, it has registration and vote history from when I was in Orange County and when I was in LA, when I lived in Yolo County. So that's number one. Number two is like I mentioned earlier, we get data, external public data, like county assessor records. We can show who, uh, who's a homeowner, who's a renter. We can even show who owns multiple homes and we have them flagged in some accounts as landlords. Um, that's kind of special data that we, we create for some clients. Um, and then uh, we have contact information, like was mentioned, phone numbers. Uh, we differentiate. We have to basically pay a third party to help us differentiate uh, landlines from cell phones because there's legal issues about how you can use both of those. We have over 8 million registrar emails on the voter file, which is very unique to California. And then there's a lot of other stuff that we do for pollsters that allows them to do some of the segmenting that they were talking about. So um, without giving away secrets, because Mark mentioned it, uh, he gets his samples in these regional breakdowns. Um, he uses a stratified sampling process. And then he gets, he gets uh, age breakdowns, gender breakdowns, ethnicity breakdowns. And then he can essentially, and I don't know his methodology when he actually, after he gets the data, but he could essentially, you know, ensure that he gets X number of voters that he expects to have in his poll from from this gender, ethnic, you know, uh, geographic cluster. Um, and so a lot of that stuff. Also things like in California, we have data on the voter file that we manage 
on if somebody gets a ballot in a foreign language. So, you know, if Ben needs to do a poll and contact uh, people who speak Spanish, he can do that uh, with, with that. We also have data on where people were born. So we can say like this person was born in Central America, this person was born in, uh, you know, some other foreign country. Um, all I that would, stuff, yeah. I would say, Paul, that uh, information that you have about people who request Spanish language ballots really helps in terms yeah. of bringing into our samples the Spanish speakers. We send out our email invitations in Spanish to the people who you have already identified requested ballot information sent to them in Spanish. We literally could do the same thing in other languages. I'd love to take the Berkeley poll into the Asian languages as well to get multiple languages. California is a multi-ethnic society and we've really got to pay attention to it. And so anything I can do to improve our ethnic samples, I think is a plus, but uh, the identification of people in terms of your sample that have Spanish, uh, you know, requested Spanish is, is invaluable. And that's how we get, I think, fairly accurate uh, Latino voting data. Oh, it's huge. I mean, we use, we use bilingual, for the parts where we are using phone, we use bilingual callers to call into Chinese speaking, Spanish speaking, Vietnamese households, because we find that if you don't actually use a bilingual caller to call that, you know, the person who answers the phone will just hang up on you if it's not in language. Um, also the same as, you know, doing texting and emailing in the language makes a huge difference. Yeah. And it's also that we have, since we have so much prior vote history, we have things in California that like they never even thought about in other parts of the country. Like we actually have on the voter record, everybody on this call who has uh, voted by mail, I can tell you the exact day that the county registrar received your ballot going back over a decade. And we use that data to, to identify people who are more likely to vote early, more likely to vote late. A lot of that stuff uh, and all the prior vote history makes you know, a real rich data set for these, uh, for each of these pollsters. And each of these pollsters, just so you know, they're trying to do the same things, but they all use slightly different methodologies. Um, they all order the data in different ways. They've worked with the data over hundreds of samples. And so there's a real dexterity that they have in using California data. And sometimes when we get pollsters calling, coming and ordering data from other parts of the country, they'll call me back later and say, hey, do you have a flag for if they voted in a primary? And I'm like, yeah, it's right there. Like they're not used to seeing that. They'll, we have had pollsters model things like likely to get an absentee ballot. And I would call them and say like, uh, it's that value in column 164 shows you if they have an absentee ballot. Uh, we've had pollsters model whether or not uh, somebody's likely to be a Spanish speaker. And we're like, uh, we have the flag. So a lot of this stuff nationally when they come to California, it's kind of foreign to them. And then when our California pollsters, I think, go into other parts of the state, they kind of feel the pinch of having to work with uh, just not the quality kind of data that we have. You know, Paul, that I usually hold on to my ballot and give it some love before I drop it off at the polling station. We call you always late. But this year not because y'all were scaring me so much. Um, all right, we have like, uh, 13 minutes left. But I want to talk about ballot measures. And Mark, I mean, you've been pulling on these all year. We do have a question um, I'll throw out about Prop 22. And then I want to talk about Prop 15 and no votes, because I think that's really interesting. But um, one of our attendees asked, can you talk about the polls on Prop 22? They say a few days before the election, it was at 
um, obviously that's winning. Mark, is that, I don't know if that was an IGS poll what you guys showed, but I think you had a pretty high number of undecided in your last one, right? Right, well, first uh, let me set the context of our polling. We did a poll in uh, mid-September and we had uh, Prop 22 at just 39%, but the no side was 36. They were had a tiny lead, but you know they had an advantage. Huge, 25% of voters uh, said they were undecided. They hadn't been thinking about it. So the first indicator was, look, these measures are getting subordinated in this hyper-partisan world of presidential politics this year. And I think that is a problem for all the ballot propositions. So voters came to them late. We then did our second poll, uh, which was in two weeks, it, it completed two weeks before the election. So that was our final poll. And we showed an increase in the yes side support from 39 to 46. Uh, we also showed an increase uh, in the no side from 36 to 42. So it had a lead, a four point lead, and, and, but still 12% were undecided. But when I look at it, I think, well, what was the change? And how did the people who changed how did they divide? It was four to three on the yes side. The other thing I would have to say, and this is unique to Prop 22, usually when I'm evaluating the undecided vote, if you haven't convinced somebody to vote in favor of your uh, initiative, usually you vote no. And why is that? Because a no vote is to not change the status quo. And that's certainly the case on Prop 15 and most of the other propositions. But on Prop 22, for most of the public, their perception was, I don't want to change the status quo. That was a yes vote. So in my judgment, most of those undecideds in our poll, which again were 12% in the two weeks before the election, and that included, I have to say, a quarter of the sample in that two week before the election poll had already voted. So they didn't have any undecideds. So with that 12% of the remaining 75% were not really there yet. And I think they broke heavily to the yes side and obviously <laughs> they were encouraged to do so with $225 million. I think that was you know, a dominant thing. You couldn't escape turning on Jeopardy or a football game or whatever you watch on TV. My God, it's just bombarding you all the time. And it crowded it out, the other propositions. I think it worked to the detriment of some of the other propositions trying to make their case because they couldn't break through the clutter in the final two or three weeks. I don't know who did their polling, but it was a success of their campaign to steal the message of the no side and make it yeah. their own. I mean, money talks, right? Money always talks. Ruth, um, you have a question for Mark. I have a question for Mark because we were also polling on 22 and our, uh, we actually had it very close to what the final vote was. And um, so I actually have a question, Mark, is from your polling, which I saw, how do you address undecided since you're doing yours all on web? We shifted a while ago to when we actually in, on, on web surveys, we give only yes or no as an option. If they try to skip, then they'll get a, do you lean or are you undecided? Um, the same with candidate campaigns so, or, or candidate races. So how are you addressing undecideds physically in your web polling? Right now, we, that's a very good question. And we actually thought about that quite a bit. And for us, when we force somebody to choose we get a lot of blowback in the commentary on our poll website. I mean, I couldn't do your poll because the I couldn't answer the question. Now, we literally give people the third option of undecided on our two polls. 
And so that is certainly different than what you're doing. And I'm sure you're getting higher distributions on both the yes and the no side than what we were. But in my judgment as a public pollster, I'm just trying to hold up the mirror and show the California public what it's thinking right now. That's my objective. I'm not working for a client. And there were just large proportions of voters in my judgment who remained undecided on these ballot propositions fairly late. Again, I wish I could have done a poll the weekend yeah. before the election. I would have seen even more movement. But I, I think I would have confirmed that the yes side was picking up those undecideds. I don't know if you saw that in your poll. In the Actually, we thought uh, it, it was, it's been pretty stable, actually. It, it's been surprisingly stable over the last two months um, that it's been, um, it's been maintaining on the yes side, so where it was. And, and I mean, I think that we could talk about it, of course, some other time. I mean, we've been doing a lot of thinking and actually some testing on where do you offer a don't know or an undecided option and where do you? So one question is like on a candidate favorable or unfavorable opinion, should you give people a don't know option? Because, and, and so we've been, a lot, we've been do, experimenting with it, I think, especially on the ballot. We're trying to simulate more closely what actually happens on the ballot. We allow you to skip the question but we don't give you another option because on the option, it, it, and, and we've seen much lower undecideds and we think it's actually helping to, to get a better sense of where those undecideds are really going. But there's no right answer here. This is all like- well, What, what I could certainly do if I really want to get a little more refined is just to follow up on anybody who selects undecided is to give them a push. I mean, to me, that would be my second alternative. I didn't do that, but if I, kind of knew beforehand that this election cycle was gonna be one in which we got higher than usual undecideds by doing what we did, I think I might go back and do it that way. So um, Mark hit on the idea of like the no side and, and, and that, I mean, you know, the sort of common wisdom is like, if people don't know, they vote no, but I'm curious if, if you all have any kind of sense of like, on ballot measures if people or they just skip the question even when it comes down to the ballot um is it is is our sort of common wisdom that it's easier to get a no vote like right ben i mean is that yes yes yeah. definitely believe that's true i don't i'm sure the others would agree with that if you're on the no side especially a well-financed no campaign all you need to do is confuse or you know make people uncertain about what it is this initiative is trying to do. The threshold to get people to vote no is much lower than the threshold to get people to change the status quo and vote yes. So I, I think that's always been the case. And I think when I was looking at our results on Prop 15, which in mid-September was at 49 and you do one two weeks before, it didn't move. It was still at 49, yes. It never got above 50. And now the election results are coming back. It's at 49. I mean. What's going on there? Well, people just couldn't, they didn't get enough people, if, if it holds, uh, to just cross the threshold of 50%. Um, we'll see, but uh, that's, yeah, I've always feared propositions that are showing this late movement to the no side. And I wrote that into our uh, report that even though we still have a lead on Prop 15, in my judgment, based on history, this could go down and you know, it, it's just in perilous waters here because the shifting on the no side with a well-funded no campaign usually continues through to election day. Yeah, I mean, typically the case, it depends on the issue though. I mean, I've had two 
uh, ballot measures. One, I, I passed a millionaire's tax, the progressive tax in California. It started off as millionaire's tax, evolved into Prop 30 after internal machinations. Um, and then I just passed a, uh, a upper income tax in Arizona, a similar one. And in that case, um, you know, we, we held on because, uh, you know, voters realized I'm not paying any more for this. It's a tax. It's, I don't have to pay for it. 99% people is free money and it's for education. I support. And we had to, but both times we had to reassure people about it was going to, we were going to spend the money properly. There are account, tough accountability measures, but, but it depends on the issue. And, and sometimes, you know, if you have, um, you know, the fiscal impact statement, if it costs money, uh, you know, that raises questions and concerns. Democrats are okay with that, but if they're not clear on what the measure is going to do, if it's going to benefit them, um, then, you know, we'll see, I worked on Prop 19 this cycle and it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, it wasn't, you know, reformed our property tax system, residential property tax system, uh, but it was generated revenue. So it wasn't a tax increase. So ultimately we had to spend a lot of money on, on to pass it, but it ultimately it's like, it's going to prevail. So it depends on the issue. Uh, but yeah, no vote is an easier vote because it's a status quo. Nothing will happen to you as a voter if you vote no. Um, but it depends, and I give credit to the state, uh, in recent years, the ballot labels are much clearer about what measures do. Years ago, uh, they were confusing, voters were not clear, you read them, you're confused, you're gonna vote no because you're not sure, you skip it. But now it's clear what it does, what it's for, what it's supposed to do, and how much it's gonna cost. And I, I've seen, you know, that makes it a little bit easier to get a yes vote, because if a voter goes in with that, that's not well informed, reads a ballot label, they like it, they may break your way. Whereas before it was too, um, if, if, if the ballot language is confusing, then oh, you're like, no, 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 I'm going to vote. No, I don't know what the heck this thing does. Um, we only have about two minutes left and we need to end on time. And I promised that I would ask about the speed vote. So um, why don't we stick with you, Ben? Why, why, why did you buy a speed vote for Paul? Paul could probably tell the story better than I. <laughs> Paul, you want to tell it? Well, wasn't it when Duke Cunningham, wasn't there something tying with that? It, it was a, a consultant that, that we'll, we'll name nameless. Paul worked for Ed Voice and Education Reform Advocacy Group, and he and I work on a statewide ballot measure. And he and I were aligned in a strategy, and the consultant wanted to do something that we thought was irresponsible and cost a lot of money. Uh, and so our jo running joke was, because he wants to buy a boat and Paul's like, oh, I, I, I so we joked internally like, oh, let's do this so I can get it by a boat. So I bought him a, I don't know if you still have it. It was a, a small plastic model boat, it wasn't a real <laughs> boat, but, but it was, it was just, uh, it was great back when Paul worked on this side of the aisle, it was a lot of fun working together because we were aligned, but we were trying to, in conflict with a greedy consultant who we, we weren't sure about their motive. So that's where, so I bought him a boat, but it was a toy plastic boat. It wasn't that much because neither of us could afford a real boat at the time or even now. <laughs> that well, at the time is doing a lot of work in that sentence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, and now we know that you're all paying Paul, so it's fine. Um, okay. Mark DiCamillo of IGS at Berkeley, um, Ruth Bernstein of EMC Research, Paul Mitchell of Political Data Inc., and Ben Tulchin of Tulchin Research. Thank you all for these insights. I, I found it really fascinating, um, and um, I'm sure everyone else appreciates it. We'll all be watching the results to see if you guys are right. <laughs> and uh, Tim, back to you. Thank you. Thanks again to all of our panelists, and thank you for watching it. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.